Good morning, saints. I suppose it's fitting that I should formally sort of introduce myself. My name is Jared Leslie. I'm one of the elders, in case you didn't know. Uh, the rest of my family isn't here today. We've got four little ones, and it just kind of gets crazy sometimes, as many as you know. So Julia and the three other ones stayed home, but Eddie and my father are here. So um, I am truly blessed to be able to have the privilege and opportunity to preach this morning. I will be continuing my sort of protracted series of sermons on the various metaphors that Scripture uses to communicate certain aspects about God's character and our relationship to Him. But before we begin, let us pray and ask the Lord's blessing on the exposition of His Word. Heavenly Father, we praise You, for You are holy. You are just and righteous in all of Your ways. We thank You and praise You for your sovereign will that has given us your word. Thank you for your spirit that allows us to believe and understand your word. We ask that you would speak to us this day. Illuminate your word to us so that we can understand it, so that we can imitate Christ well and glorify you. Amen. Amen. So we are talking about another metaphor. Now, how often is it, saints, that you stop to recognize the amazing gift that is our five senses? Our five senses really are remarkable. But we do tend to take our senses for granted. And unfortunately, we only remember them when they're compromised in some way. And some of you may have remembered this from when COVID first started. You kind of knew that you had it because one of the telltale symptoms was what? You'd lose your sense of smell and you couldn't taste anything. I remember that happened to me and it was very strange. Eating food, I remember eating mashed potatoes and roast chicken, just texture, no flavor. It was very strange. Thankfully for me, however, uh, the one food that never lost its flavor was Reese's peanut butter cups. So <laughs> there, there. There was a brief period in 2020 where I was ex eating those exclusively just to keep my sanity that, yes, in fact, I could still taste. But I could stick my nose into a freshly ground uh, bag of coffee and nothing, no smell. It was strange and not a little bit disconcerting. But until that happened, I had never really given much thought to the privilege and the gift that was my sense of smell, let alone all the other senses that I possess. These really are amazing gifts that God has given to us, and like all gifts, all good things that our Father gives us, they are designed to teach us something about His character and our relationship to Him. Now, what is interesting is that the Bible actually records several instances of God employing or experiencing human senses. God is recorded as being able to see as we can see, hear as we can hear, and taste, touch, and even smell just as we can. And each time God is seen as employing one of these senses, every time he experiences one of these senses, it's viewed in a symbolic manner in order to teach us something about his character and to teach us something about our status, our relationship to him. So we have come here today 
to worship God, to learn from his word. And all of that, to sing songs and to pray, and all of this is a form of worship. We'd say singing is a form of worship. Praying is a form of worship. We even call this time the worship service. But if I were to ask you, of the five senses that we possess and that God can employ, which one of them is most, most closely connected to the worship service? Is it sight? Are we here today so that God can see us? Is he primarily concerned with our appearance, the aesthetics of our liturgy and of the building? We'd probably say no. We'd say that God cares very little about our outward appearance. And we may remember the story in 1 Samuel where Samuel anoints David. And, and God says, I am not looking on the outward appearance of David as the determining factor. And we would be right. God is not primarily concerned with what he sees here today. How about hearing? Is God mostly concerned with what he hears from us? Now, of course, it's true that God hears our prayers and he hears our songs. But are those things, our prayers and our songs, to be understood as though we are making a soothing sound or a beautiful melody to the Lord that pleases him? Perhaps. We may be able to make that argument. But again, it is, see, it is strained to say that sound is the primary sense that is connected with the worship service. How about touch? Have we come here today to physically touch God or to be touched by him? Now, we would certainly say not in a literal sense. Jesus is not here but in his body. The Father and the Spirit do not have a body. So what is left is that we would have to say that we are perhaps being touched in a metaphorical way, that God is changing us and shaping us and sanctifying us by his touch. That's a possible explanation. But nowhere in Scripture does it say that we, as the body of Christ, are reaching out and touching God during this service, and that our touch is somehow a soothing touch to him that we are somehow pleasing him by our physical touch. That's not found anywhere in Scripture. What's left? Well, we have smell and taste. Now, the interesting thing about smell and taste is that they're joined intrinsically. It's nearly impossible to taste without our sense of smell. And oftentimes, when we're really, really hungry and we smell good food, we say things like, that smells so good, I can already taste it. So, sense, or our sense of smell, rather, is really the key to our taste. So I'll ask you, does smell, therefore, give us the best understanding of how our worship is received by God? I'll give you a hint. Our prayers and our worship is recorded in the book of Revelation as being incense, which is offered before the throne of God, as a sweet-smelling fragrance. So the short answer is yes, that smell is the sense that is primarily connected with worship. So God is primarily concerned with what he smells during the worship service. Now that may seem strange, but we will see why that is exactly the case. 
The scripture reading this morning was Exodus 30, verses 22 through 38. And it records the recipes for the anointing oil, as well as the incense that was to be burned on the altar of incense. Now, both of these compounds were designed to be extremely fragrant, and they were to be used only during the tabernacle or temple worship services, sacrificial services. Throughout the Old Testament, the word aroma, or the the Hebrew word aroma, which I won't try to pronounce because I don't know Hebrew, uh, the word aroma or sweet-smelling scent is used some 44 times, and in those 44 times, it is always used in connection with either offering acceptable sacrifices to the Lord or in offering sacrifices to idols, in which case, when it's used in conjunction with sacrificing to idols, it's referred to as a foul aroma or a detestable aroma. The first use of the word aroma appears in Genesis 8. This is immediately after the flood where Noah builds an altar to the Lord. So Genesis 8, verses 20 through 21 say this, Noah built an altar to the Lord. He then took some of every kind of clean animal and clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled the soothing aroma and said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of mankind, even though the inclination of their minds is evil from childhood on. I will never again destroy everything that lives just as I have done. So from this point on in the history of Israel, the primary sense that God employs to discern whether a sacrifice is acceptable or not is through the sense of smell. Now, in order to understand this metaphor, this imagery that's taking place, we have to understand the the makeup, the function, and the use of the anointing oil, the incense, and the burnt offerings. Now, the anointing oil, which is described in verses 26 through 30, was used to anoint or consecrate and set apart for holy use in the service of God. So I'll read it again. Verses 26 through 30. It says, With it you are to anoint the tent of meeting, the ark of the testimony, the table and all of its utensils, the lampstand and its utensils, the altar of incense and the altar of burnt offering." and all of its utensils, the laver and its base. So you are to sanctify them, and they will be most holy. Anything that touches them will be holy. You are to anoint Aaron and and his sons and sanctify them so that they may minister as my priests. All that was used during the temple worship service, the tabernacle service, was to be anointed with this oil. And by anointing, they would either smear the oil on or sprinkle the oil, sort of flick it. That set those implements or the priests apart. It made them holy and and, uh, able to serve God appropriately. Now, what we tend to miss here is that these elements, these utensils of the service, would have then taken on the smell of the anointing oil. Because this was not simply done one time at the construction of the tabernacle or at the construction of the temple. This anointing was done over and over again. So over time, these elements would become penetrated and saturated with the smell of the anointing oil. This sweet, 
very strong, even perhaps spicy substance, symbolized the holiness and purity of God, and it was designed, the recipe was designed so that it would be utterly distinct from every other aroma in Israelite society. What we learn from this is that the worship of God had a very intense and distinct smell. The Israelites could literally smell the worship of God from far away. Then we come to the incense. In verses 36 through 38, it describes its purpose. It says, You shall beat some of it very small and put part of it before the testimony and the tent of meeting where I shall meet with you. It shall be most holy for you, and the incense that you make, you shall make according to its composition. You shall not make it for yourself. It shall be for you holy to the Lord. Whoever makes any like it to use as perfume shall be cut off from his people. The incense recipe, just like the anointing oil, is holy to the Lord. It's set apart, and it is to be used only during the temple service. Now, the altar of incense was located in the holy place. So if we know anything about the structure of the tabernacle, you have the outer courts, then you have the holy place and the holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant was. That's where God's spirit dwelled. And what separated the holy place from the holy of holies was the veil. This is the veil that was torn when Jesus was crucified. The altar of incense sat directly in front of the veil. Now, the priest would take a coal from the altar of burnt offerings and bring it along with the incense into the holy place. He would then burn the incense on the altar, and this incense, the smoke, would fill that chamber with the thick smoke and smell and therefore act as a covering for the priest and a covering for Israel. It was a covering of protection. The smoke and the smell of the incense covered them. Additionally, the incense burned on the altar of incense was not to be copied, just like the anointing oil. We read that in verse 38. The prohibition against using the anointing oil and the recipe of incense for personal use was for this reason. Since they were holy and set apart for holy use, if someone were to take it upon themselves and copy the recipe and use it outside of temple service, they would be inadvertently declaring that they themselves were holy and right before God when in fact they were not. And so the penalty for this inappropriate use, for this flippant use of these holy things, was removal from the covenant. They would be cut off and cast out of Israel. They were literally kicked out of the promised land. So in a way, you could say that the anointing oil or the incense, which are supposed to be instruments of the atonement, if they're used inappropriately, they are then, ter they are then turned against the person who violates this law, and they become instruments of judgment and rejection. So the oil and incense were to be used correctly. That is, they were to be applied with faith and fear and reverence, and only then were they effective. They were not merely magical potions that worked regardless of the worshiper's desires and intentions. That's an important point. And finally, we come to the burnt offering. 
Now, there, there were five types of burnt offerings, and each one of them deserves its own sermon, its own field of study. So I do not have time to elaborate in depth on each one. But they do share something in common, and that is that they are all called food offerings to the Lord. And this is because the worshiper would offer either an animal or sometimes raw grain mixed with oil and salt, or even perhaps baked bread as a grain offering. And these were all referred to as food offerings. No matter what type of offering that was taking place, the requirement was the same that this, was, that this offering was to be without blemish. That is to say, it was supposed to be the highest quality, the best purity that the offerer possessed. So the animal would sometimes be butchered and washed before being burned, and other times the animal and the um, grain would be offered and burned whole. Now we want to remember at this point that the anointing oil has been applied to everything that is being used during this sacrificial system. So the smell that came from the altar was the mixture of the burnt offering along with the anointing oil. And the altar, or the, the smell that therefore came from the burnt, burnt offering, was quite pleasant. And Exodus and Leviticus both state that the grain offering in particular was to be burned with additional oil, additional frankincense, and it was to be seasoned with salt. So due to all of this mixture of ingredients, the aroma that was coming from the altar, coming from the temple, really was quite pleasant. And the important point is that it was distinct from all the other smells and aromas in Hebrew culture at that time. Perhaps the most significant function of the burnt offering was that of substitutionary atonement. In this instance, the offerer brings the offering and they would lay their hands on the animal and perform a type of transference. That is, the animal would take upon it the sins of the person and it would be offered in their place. The smoke, therefore, that arose from the altar mixed with the anointing oil was the sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord, but it was also a symbol of covering. So just as the incense smoke covers the Ark of the Covenant, shielding the priest in the holy place, here the smoke from the burnt offering is seen as covering the sinner and also replacing the sinner's smell with a sweet-smelling aroma. So it is that this smoke, this smell of incense and burnt offerings acted as a protective covering. They were being covered by the scent of atonement and sacrifice. And what all this tells us is that God has a sense of smell. But we know that God the Father and the Holy Spirit, they do not have a nose. They do not have olfactory nerves. They don't have a brain that's made of fat and connective tissue that can somehow process the difference between chemical odors. But God is the creator of all these components, of all these things. He created us and everything that we can smell and sense. So we, we regard the Lord's sense of smell not in a limited physical sense, that is, we, he has a nose like we do, but rather that his sense of smell is so intense that he can discern the difference 
between acceptable offerings made with faith and unacceptable offerings made by those who do not fear him. We would say God's sense of smell is supernatural. He alone can discern the hearts and intentions of man. And these intentions, these motives of our hearts, are likened to a scent that we emit. Our hearts exude an odor that only the Lord can detect. And what is implied here is that God cannot be fooled by our scent. In other words, our smell, the odor that we produce, does not lie. And that's the remarkable thing about smell, about the sense of smell. Out of all of our senses, we trust our sense of smell almost completely. And we can tell that we do by the language that we use regarding smell and regarding our other senses. We say things like this, as far as I can see it, or as far as I can tell, or that sounds about right. We say that because while sight and hearing are certainly valuable, we are aware that they can be easily deceived. How often have you thought you've seen something, but it just merely turns out to be a shadow, or it's just a floater in your eye because you're getting old? Right? How often do you think that you hear someone say your name only to turn around and no one's there? We experience this all the time. Sight and our ability to hear can easily deceive us. But when was the last time that you doubted your nose, doubted what you smelled? We don't doubt what we smell to the point that we have phrases that communicate that. We say something just seems off about this or, or smells off about this. Something smells fishy about this situation. Or we can say, I smell a rat when we're talking about a certain politician maybe. We say this because we trust our sense of smell so much that it becomes a metaphor in our own language to imply that despite all the information I have at hand, despite everything that all of my other senses are telling me, it's my sense of smell alone which is telling me the truth, that something's not quite right. I can't quite discern what it is, but my nose is not leading me wrong. When in doubt, follow your nose, as a, young, as a wise man once said. So when God wants to teach us that there is a hidden quality, a hidden substance that we emit, that we produce without knowing it, that the intentions of our hearts create either sin or faithfulness, and that he alone can detect and discern that difference, what better image to use than that of either a stench of sin or a sweet-smelling fragrance of faith? In this way, we can better understand that God is not looking on the outward appearance of the person, nor does he listen to our words and our arguments and the clever defenses that we can give. Rather, it's as though he can smell the aroma of our heart. And this aroma pours out of us whether we want it to or not. There is still more that goes into this metaphor and it can be found in examining the particular ingredients of the anointing oil and the incense. In fact, each of the individual ingredients, as I said, could deserve their own sermon. 
to elaborate their particular smell and their particular metaphorical use. But I want to focus on particularly the uh, compounds of myrrh, stacte, onica, galbanum, and frankincense. These five elements, these five ingredients, are all resins or tree saps. They are all resins from the various trees that grew in the ancient Middle Eastern area. And there is an important symbol for why these resins or these tree saps were used for the incense and the anointing oil. In order to collect sap, some of you may have done this growing up, in order to collect sap, the harvester would what? Have to make a cut or a wound in the side of the tree in order for the sap to collect and then harden like a scab. Then they could collect it. To collect the resin or the sap from the trees was something that they had to do over and over again. So the tree would be wounded and then a scab would form and then they would receive it. So this resin was understood metaphorically as the blood of the tree. Therefore, the resin is a symbol of the blood of the sacrifice, which is poured out by the wounds of the animal that's being sacrificed. Going even further, myrrh, which was another type of resin, was collected from Kamaphora trees. Now, it could either be harvested by making a wound in the tree and collecting it like the other four resins, or it would also seep out naturally from the bark of the tree in tiny drops. So the tree would be covered in these drops of sap. Now, myrrh has a light reddish color, and these drops would cover the tree, and it would appear like it was sweating, like it was covered in beads of sweat. So it has been remarked by many scholars that there is an intense connection, an intense typological connection between myrrh forming on the tree in this way as a foreshadow of Christ sweating drops of blood in the garden. So these resins, these types of blood from the tree were burned and they emitted a sweet smelling fragrance. So this is why they were used in the recipes for the anointing oil and the incense. Now, for the disciples in the first century Christians, it was widely understood that Christ was not only the burnt offering, which was offered on the cross for the atonement of our sins, but that he himself was also the incense, which was metaphorically burned on the altar of incense. His body is said to be the bread of life. It was, his body was a new and better grain offering. He was the Lamb of God without spot or blemish, crushed and killed on the altar. His body, therefore, was purer and more righteous than even the finest incense, the finest oil. And while Christ's physical sacrifice, while Christ was on the cross, he was not emitting the anointing oil or incense. The only smells that were actually coming forth from the cross were that of blood, sweat, and tears. 
But those things are seen as a far more fragrant, far more aromatic, and far more pleasing scent to the Father than any incense ever was. The church father, Ambrose of Milan, the Archbishop of Milan, has this to say in, the, in uh, I think, uh, what was he, like 387, he wrote this, in regard to the scent of Christ's sacrifice and its implication for us. He says, Christ is the flower of Mary, who sprouted forth from the virginal womb to spread the good odor of faith throughout the whole world, as he himself said, I am the flower of the field and the lily of the valley, from Song of Songs 2, verse 1. The flower, even when cut, keeps its odor, and when bruised, increases it, and when torn, does not lose it. So too, the Lord Jesus, on that gibbet of the cross, neither failed when bruised, nor fainted when torn. And when cut by the pricking of the lance, made more beautiful by the sacred color of the outpoured blood, he grew young again, himself not knowing how to die, and exhaling among the dead the gift of eternal life. So Christ's sacrifice on the cross created the most pleasant aroma to ever make its way into the throne room of heaven. And the good news is that we are covered by this smell through faith, which is a gift of the Holy Spirit. This is the good news. The Holy Spirit has come, and new life is found through Christ. But saints, we must not fool ourselves into thinking that we can offer sweet-smelling sacrifices apart from Christ. There is not good news without bad news, and the bad news for us is that our hearts do not emit sweet-smelling aromas to God. In fact, our hearts are idle factories. They are factories that create nothing but foul odors that God cannot stand. Now, we may look nice on the outside. We may know all the right things to say. But within our very souls and from out of our hearts, sin arises and condemns us. This is precisely what Jesus taught several times, but in particular in Mark chapter 7. In Mark 7, verses 14 through 22, he says this to the crowd and then to the disciples. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all you, you who can understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And he had... And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about this parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and then is expelled? And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart, of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these things come from within, and they defile a person. 
our hearts emit this foul stench of sin, just like our bodies create odor. And there's nothing we can do to stop that. Can you, can you stop your body from creating body odor? No, we can cover it up. We can mask it with deodorant or perfume, but we can't stop that process. So it is with sin. We can try to mask it. We can try to ignore it, just plug our nose to it, but we're not removing the source of this foul smell. We can do nothing to defeat sin on our own. Now, uh, the last two weeks, uh, TJ mentioned this verse and Joel mentioned this verse, so I, I think it's fitting that I would also uh, elaborate on it slightly. Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23. And I want to offer just an additional way to understand this passage in light of what we're talking about. Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23 say this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Why is it that these individuals who seemingly did great things, who did great things for Christ and the kingdom, why is it that they are cut off and rejected by Christ? Well, clearly it's not by what Christ saw or heard from them. These individuals, therefore, were focused on the outward appearance and not the condition of their hearts, nor the condition of their faith. For it is faith in Christ and reliance on his deeds, his works, that cleanses us, that washes our hearts. These people in, in Matthew 7 looked like they were godly. They had all the appearances and they said the right things. But the truth was that their hearts stunk with pride and self-righteousness. And because of this foul, unfamiliar odor that they exuded, Christ says to them, depart from me. I don't know you. I do not recognize you. So we must be washed and have our hearts transformed and receive a new odor. And this is what Christ does for us. He imparts his righteousness to us so that we are now able, we are capable of offering sacrifices to the Father of a broken and contrite heart. We are able to approach the Father and confess our sins freely. We are imparted, as it were, with Christ's fragrance, the fragrance of the sweet-smelling incense. Our old odor is removed. Our hearts of stone are replaced with hearts of flesh. Where once was pride in ourselves, now faith has taken its place, and we are filled with Christ's very own spirit. And this spirit empowers us to follow him and serve him. So we then become his imitators. Now I want you to listen to the language that Paul uses when he's talking about or commanding us to be imitators of Christ. To be imitators of God. From Ephesians chapter 5 verse 1 and 2. Paul says this, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. 
So as imitators and co-heirs with Christ, we have been given the same smell that Christ possesses. And it is by this smell that he knows us. He recognizes us as belonging to him. And therefore, the Father and the Holy Spirit recognize us as belonging to him. Now, I'd like to end with one last passage. Uh, and this was one that gave me uh, quite a deal of grief. And I had to reach out to two of my professors from college, to which I am greatly indebted um, for their help on this passage. And that is Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 3. And if this passage has the potential to illuminate this whole study even more. So Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 3. Here Isaiah is prophesying about the Messiah and how the Messiah judges and has discernment. It says this, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. First, we learn from this that the Messiah is a shoot, which is a young tree that grows out of the stump or the heritage of Jesse, and it bears much fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of righteousness and obedience to God. Obedience and faith, which are as the sweet-smelling resins that are collected on the trees. Thus Christ is seen as the tree from which this holy obedience is collected from. The incense of obedience and faith is produced by Christ. Then in verse 3, this is where it gets really interesting, and there's actually a lot of controversy. In verse 3, the word delight there, and it says, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. The word delight in Hebrew literally means smell or smelling. Now, there's not a single English translation that uses the word smell or smelling. And there's a whole backstory of why that's the case. If you want to know the answer to that question, it's, it's a long one. But that word is actually smell or smelling. So if we were to translate it literally... Verse 3 would read like this, And his smelling shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. Now that reading makes sense because he's contrasting the sense of smelling against the two other senses, sight and sound. If this is the case, then the Messiah's method Christ's method of judgment and discernment is not through the means that we would normally employ. That is, what we can see and what we can hear. That's what we use in the courtroom. Rather, his judgment is through what he can smell. And he can smell the difference between sin and righteousness. 
He can smell the difference between those who belong to him and those who do not. And no degree of flattering or convincing can cover the true scent that our hearts emit. And Christ can detect that true reality. And this is precisely what's going on in Matthew 7. In Matthew 7, those who said they have done all these things for his name, this is why they were not known by him. Because he did not recognize their scent. On the last day, saints, on the day of judgment, if you find yourself having to give a defense and offer an explanation to speak at all on behalf of what you've done in your life, it's too late. Christ will judge you according, he will judge according to those who belong to him through the Spirit and through faith. Only by faith in Christ do our lives, do our deeds become pleasing aromas to the Father because we smell like the Son. Our praises and our worship and our prayers today during this service, if they are done in faith, emit the same fragrance as the cross. We are covered and cleansed in this new odor. So thanks be to Christ that he has given us new hearts, that he has imparted to us his fragrance so that we can do good works. We are now free to lay our lives and our deeds down at his feet and say, these things avail me nothing, nothing apart from the faith that you have given to me. When we trust Christ fully and completely for our salvation, we emit this sweet-smelling aroma before the Father, and again, he recognizes it as his Son. So saints, as you go from this place, examine your hearts each day and ask that Christ would cleanse them so that you have nothing left but faith and reliance on him. Pray that he would root out all the pride and sin that would cause you to rely on your own strength. And may you always remember that he has taken away our natural scent, and he has replaced it with his own body, his own blood, and he fills us with, with his spirit as a testimony to the Father that we belong to him. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you for this amazing gift of new life that you have given to us through your Son. He has made a way for us to have eternal life, to share and to fellowship with you forevermore. We praise you and thank you for it. We ask that you would sanctify us, purify our hearts, so that we can glorify you in everything that we do. Amen.